0: Man, if you think Jason can sing, you should see him cut wood down there at the shop, I tell you what, man, goodness, the whole group is fantastic, what a ministry, thank you. Well, really excited about this evening, open your Bibles up, Revelation chapter 1, and uh, I want to share with you a brand new study tonight, and been working on this for a couple weeks now, and uh, really just begin to come together the last couple days. I've never shared this with anyone, not even my own wife. This is the first night she gets to hear this, so uh, it's a brand new study. God's been doing some just overwhelming things in my life with this, and I want to share it with you. And quite frankly, I think it's very timely. Uh, I think it's very timely. Just leave it at that. I've um, been walking through Revelation, and uh, the context has been really significant uh, in terms of the first chapter. He's introducing the prophecy to us, and so this whole introduction is going to be the foundation by which everything is going to be built upon uh, in the prophecy uh, from chapters four down to the end of the book, uh, and it's been really, really significant. We've been caught up in in the uh, Patmos section, which is uh, the fourth aspect of the prophecy in which he's uh, introducing to us. This is where... Uh, he is commissioned to write down everything that he sees. And this week, primarily, we've really been focusing in on verses 12 down through verse 16, which is this lengthy description of Jesus. And man, it's been really just remarkable because he's presented... See, Jesus is presented as the one who can minister to me. See, he's the one that helps me in my circumstances and and the difficulties of my life, and the frustrations that I have, and the rejoicing, and the pain, and see, all the things that are life. Are you with me? See, all the kind of stuff that we live with on a daily basis, see, he ministers to me. Which begs the question, is he capable? See, is he capable? Well, the first way in which he's presented in verse 12 is he's a son of man. See, he is capable. See, he's not only capable, but he's been where we've been. See, he's walked where we've walked. And see, he's had, he has a bodily drive. He has bodily drives like I have bodily drives. And he lived under the pressure that I live under. And, and see, all the things that are common to man, see, he it was common to him. He was tempted like we were tempted. And it's remarkable. And so as he overcame, I can overcome. So he's adequate to be able to minister to me. And that was in verse 12 and 13. And then when you begin to get down into verses 14, 15, and 16, you, he elaborates on how, in fact, he is going to minister to us. And so that all spills out to us. Uh, entered into, uh, we're entered into the home stretch of the first chapter, which is verses 17 down through verse 20. Um, 17 through verse 20. And it's the concluding scene, it's the concluding remarks that John's going to make concerning um, his encounter with Jesus. And verses 17 and 18, I've lumped that together because it's basically one picture. And it's really, really significant. I'm going to read that at this time. And we're going to walk through it this evening. Uh, and I think this is really significant. I think this is really significant material. I think you're going to get it, uh, really uh, get a lot out of this. Verses 17 and 18 read, When I saw him, and that refers to verses 12 through 16, When I saw him, I fell down at his feet as though I were dead. But he placed his right hand on me and said, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the one who lives. I was dead, but look, I am alive Okay, forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. That's what he says. The context of the first chapter has been just... It was an eye-opening. It was an eye-opener for me. Uh, first off, we, we dealt with, and we did not get the chance to look at it this week, but verses 5 through 8, which is a praise section. And why that's important, because... Now get this. You've got to get a hold of this. This is profound. The number one... The number one characteristic... Of a person in the kingdom as that they are a people of praise, which means they are walking around talking about how great God is, going, "Wow, now we could talk about that, but when you begin to look at specifically the seven churches in the province of Asia, and John, specifically, when I begin to look at those churches and look at john himself i i can 't believe they 're praising because it 's not like they won the lottery. <laughs> See, this is, they're not praising over financial windfall. They're not praising over easy times. So they're not praising about, wow, praise the Lord. Police officer came and he didn't get me, he got the guy behind me. Hallelujah. Okay. See, that's not, see the, the, the content of their praise, this is, this is incredible, the content of their praise is not what's best for them, it's what's best for his kingdom and somehow they get to be a part of that. And that's the content of their praise. Now get this, it's not only the content of their praise that they get to be a part of the kingdom, but it's at their own cost. See, they're throwing their hands up going, wow, you are so fantastic. And that's in the midst of being fed to lions. See, that's really interesting to me. See, there's no angles in that. It's somehow being caught up. They have in the language that I've been using, and we've been talking about heavily this week. Is I want to live in a kingdom perspective. See, I want to wake up in the morning, and I want to see my world through different eyes. I want I want to see the scene of my life. I would like to walk as my life unfolds, and I would like to see that on a whole different plane. I want I want my life to be measured by a different kingdom. See, I want, my, I want success to be understood on a different kind of measuring scale. As a Christian, I think we're supposed to live like that.
1: See, how do I measure
0: success? How do I, how do I measure the perfect wife? How do I measure success in the life of my children? See, dreams, goals, all those kinds of things. See, that, this is a perspective this group has. And they are walking around going, he is fantastic. In fact, let me give you a plain example of this. In chapter 1, verse 9, and we didn't get to this this week either, the last half of verse 9 is the character of the kingdom. We looked at the kingdom community Sunday morning about how they're all tight and they're together in this. The last half of verse 9 is the character of that group, which should speak a lot to us. See, what's our character? See, what are we hot and bothered about? What are we upset about? What do we get excited about? See, what's the character of that kingdom? And when you go into this, you're looking at John's character. Listen to what he says. He says, I am your brother and companion, and the one who shares with you in the persecution in the kingdom and the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. So if you're wrapped up in Jesus, you're going to be wrapped up into persecution, suffering, and kingdom. (laughs) Isn't that exciting? All right. He says, I was on the island of Patmos. Paul's right there. And we talked a little bit about this. Tradition tells us, this is remarkable. Tradition tells us how he, how he ended up on the island of Patmos. Boiled alive in oil. Yuck. Okay? Why'd they do that? Roman emperor wants to break the back of Christianity along with some other small religious sects. Takes John. Wants to torture him. Doesn't want to just kill him. Wants to get him to renounce Christ. See, if that could happen, snap to Christianity. It'd be a death blow. So when they boil him in oil, instead of him snapping, he preaches from the pot. (laughs) That's evangelistic stuff right there, man. That's just... I mean, he is hardcore. So they banish him to the island of Patmos and all the difficulty and all the pain and all the suffering. Do you know what he says about that? He says, verse 9, I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. I'm right where I'm supposed to be. He is not a victim of his circumstances. I probably wouldn't make a good pastor. You know how tired I am of us whining and crying about being victim of our circumstances? When biblically, that's not how the early church focused. See, the early church talked about being more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. See, they live with an entire different perspective. I don't want to see myself as a victim because I'm under the impression that he, he doesn't see me as a victim. That I'm not a victim. And that somehow, even the worst that this world or the enemy or however you want to chalk it up, the worst of what can be thrown at me, just, man, doesn't matter. I'm going to come out on the other side victorious. Perfect example, that is Jesus, Son of God. I mean, He lives above the circumstances of His life, healing, ministry. I mean, just gross opposition in His life. Betrayal. He tells His disciples, yeah, they're going to take me. If you can imagine, I mean, take the passion and put it into His life, the movie The Passion, just what He went through. Describes all that to his disciples. And looks at them and smiles and says, it's going to be great. <laughs> I'm going to be a part of his plan. And I'm going to walk out on that other side victorious. See, it's a victorious kind of a thing. That kind of an outlook. See, what would it take for you and I, just personally, this is what this did to me today in the coffee shop when I was running around screaming freedom. See, what, what would this take... Honestly, for me to have that kind of perspective in my life. What's it going to take? For me to look at the circumstances in my life and say, I trust you in this. How are you going to turn this one around? Because I'm under the impression I'm going to walk out of this giving you praise, glory, and honor. You're that fantastic. Verses 17 and 18 are really significant because you just have this elaborate picture of... Jesus that's given. And it's, it's a vision kind of a thing. And we haven't looked at this as physical, uh, all the picture language. John's trying, and how do you do that? See, how do you take the, the magnitude of his person and put that into words? I mean, that's a daunting task. So he, he's got this, just the fullness of his person facing him and he's been trying to to pick words and phrases and pictures to communicate that to us and of course in verses 17 and 18 he tells us his immediate response when he turns around to see the voice that's speaking to him and he gets this picture of Jesus, verses 17 and 18 give us his response and he says when I saw him, I fell down at his feet as though I were dead, now that is a very, one of the things I begin to find is that is a very typical profound prophet kind of encounter uh, with God, uh, with an angel. I mean, you have that everywhere. For example, I gave you a couple of these just to think about in Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 28, uh, and this has happened several times in in, in Ezekiel's life, but uh, he's describing uh, the appearance of the one who's speaking to him. He says, uh, like the appearance of a rainbow, we cut in the midst of this in the verse, but... Like uh, the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. And this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw him, I fell face down and I heard the voice speaking to me. Just, whoa! That's the typical response of an individual sees a vision. Let me give you another one. Uh, This one I think is a little bit more profound. It's in Daniel chapter 10, verse 9. I think this is really significant. He says, When I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. And I skipped a few verses, down to verse 15. He says, While he was saying this to me, I bowed with my face toward the ground and was speechless. See, the idea, if you look at that language, not the exact kind of words. And there's purpose to that. There's purpose to that. But it's not the same kind of words. But if you go through Isaiah, you go through the prophet Jeremiah, you go back to Genesis and look at some of the, the ways in which some of the, uh, uh, the early church fathers, uh, excuse me, Hebrew fathers, were approached by angels, God, so on and so forth. This is the typical posture that is being described. Now, when I begin to get into the study and deal with it, and went and looked at a couple of commentaries. And you, you know what commentaries are. Uh... Scholars, very valuable to us, who are just smarter than I'll ever be. Uh, They get in the Word and they study it and they've got education upon education upon education. And after studying a passage, they'll make comments on the passage. We take those comments and we put them in commentaries. And then Brian and I go and spend all that money on, on buying them or pirate them, whatever. And uh, so we get them, and, uh, and hey, we study their comments. One of the interesting things I saw about this is a lot, of the, a lot of the comments by the scholars on verses 17 and 18 bring up the obvious. They all say this. Oh, hey, John is doing what is typical of that of the prophets. What they do not catch on to, and only a couple alluded to it, but what I really begin to see just heavily in this, I think you're going to see it as well, is there, it's, a, it's a little bit of a different deal. The way Jesus responds to this. Now back to in some of the old prophets, and I didn't give you examples of this for time's sake, but when the prophets fall flat on their face, sometimes an angel, sometimes this almost human figure will uh, reach out his hands and, and touch him and say, hey, don't be afraid. And the phrase is, fear not. And you have that here. But you have an elaborate discourse. You have this presentation, this strong language from Jesus to John, which commands him not just to fear, but intertwined with that fear is death. This is really significant. From the, from the perspective of the book of Revelation, and you're, we're going to find this in, in a few different places, but from the perspective of the book of Revelation, you cannot separate fear and death because they're linked. You'd say, Are you sure? Absolutely. Look at the context of verse 17. Listen to what he says. First off, he says, When I saw him, I fell down at his feet as though I were dead. Okay? Fell on his face as if he were dead. Jesus comes to him and he says, places his right hand on me and he says, Fear not! So he falls as though he's dead, but Jesus sees through that and says, Hey, do not fear. So there is a deliberate linkage between fear and death. Now... I think we looked at this here before. I couldn't find my notes on this. They're in the motorhome somewhere. But uh, we have a study on fear, and it's the exact same term that's given here uh, in verse 17 when Jesus says, fear not. Okay? John is gripped by fear. First encountered uh, the term fear, which is the Greek word phobia, back in John chapter 6. I think we looked at that here one time I was here. And um, uh, counted this word back there. Uh, the Greek word that we translate fear, phobia, is one of a few different Greek words for fear in the New Testament. Okay? Phobia is the most aggressive. Okay? It just is. It's the most aggressive. In fact, that word is, is translated literally in, in the secular Greek of their day. It's translated run away. Okay? Terror. It's not just being afraid, it's losing the capacity to control speech. Notice he fell on his face, was unable to speak. Daniel. See, it's that kind of fear we're talking about. See, it's absolutely being gripped with terror. It's interesting that when you look at that term, every single time... This is so significant. Every single time an individual is faced with that, when God, Jesus, or an angel shows up, every single time there is a command given in their language. It's the strongest language that they have available to them. They command, "Do not fear." Okay, do not. It's a strong in the strongest language that they have available to them. They command, "Do not fear." The idea of fear is being confronted with an outside force which is greater than themselves. In other words, they're put in a situation that they have absolutely no control over. In light of who they are, in light of their inadequacy, they're put into a situation where they're absolutely out of control and our natural response to that is fear. And when that happens, Jesus steps in and says, Hey, fear not! I command you, do not fear. Now, there are two consistencies with that, the whole fear deal. Um, fear, one of the reasons why Jesus is, this. The, the study in John revealed to us, one of the reasons why Jesus is so adam- about, uh, adamant about not being in fear, why you're not to fear, why he commands you, do not fear, is because fear is so strong that it will dictate your actions over against God dictating your actions. Okay? When a person's in fear, fear literally grips a person and fear dictates their actions instead of Jesus dictating their actions. Let me give you an example of this. You can trace eating disorders back to fear. Okay? Psychologists do that. So you trace eating disorders back to fear. See, a person is so afraid, so afraid of not being accepted socially in their world that they will do physical harm to their body in order to be accepted. Fear. Eating or eating disorders are traced back to fear. Uh, peer pressure. Um, I've given this illustration before. I'm not sure if I've talked about it here. We did a, I did a camp, a... Few years ago in Chicago, and it was a it was a junior high and senior high camp. I think you guys do that in Joplin, Joplin District Camp. But they did a junior high and senior high camp is in Chicago, really rough area. And uh, I personally like to keep junior high and senior high separate, uh, just because. Uh, honestly, um, if you have a camp where the tenure of the camp is not Christian kids, but church kids that are not after Jesus. Junior high and senior high together gets really ugly. And it did at this camp. Because what happened was, is instead of the senior high guys, it uh, wasn't too bad among the girls, but in this particular camp, the senior high guys, instead of them setting the example and the demonstration and of, of what a senior high guy is to look like in Jesus, I mean, they were, they were persecuting the younger kids. and It was almost like college. They were hazing these kids. And they had to pay their dues kind of a deal which of course isn't Christian. And they had taken this one kid and they'd stripped him of his clothing, 7th grade boy, and they duct taped him to his bed and uh, it, went, it went way, way overboard. There was bodily fluids involved all over him. I mean, it was a mess. It was a mess thing. In fact, it went so far that uh, they had, obviously they had to call the police uh, they'd bring the law in on that kind of a deal. And uh, I remember it vividly because I got wrapped up into that. Camp director comes up to me and he says, "Hey, we we need your input on this." And and I was like, "I'm just a speaker. I don't want to be involved in this." And they said, "Well, the kid wants to talk to you." And so I went down there and and uh, he was uh, he was a mess, you know, just emotionally crying. And but as he began to spill it out, what he was crying about shocked me. He was saying, "Don't get him in trouble. Say, don't call the police on him." And I was just. I was baffled. I was thinking, well, the first thing I thought of was, obviously, he knows these kids, and when he gets out of this camp, there's going to be problems. See, they're going to get him. And so I got really aggressive with this guy, and, hey, who are they? And you go to the same church? And he was like, I don't know them. And No, 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 we don't go to the same church. And we checked all of that. and It was true. They were two different areas of the city and didn't know each other. These didn't have daily kind of contact, didn't go to the same high schools. And, and we, I was baffled on that whole thing. And finally, I got to talking with him by himself with the camp counselor there. And we were just dealing with him. And it finally came out I don't want you to do anything with, uh, to those guys because I want them to like me. Was his whole. See, he was. Get this. See, he was so afraid. Fear. He was so afraid of not being accepted that he would go through that to gain their acceptance. Folks, that's not a God. That's the, that's the result of fear. Now, that's an hour-long study on fear. We can't go through the details of that. But see, fear, and this is so remarkable, in the New Testament, when Jesus sees a person in fear, commands them in the strongest language he has, don't fear because he knows what that produces. And by the way, peer pressure is not just a teen thing. I see it with senior adults. I've mentioned this already this week. But I have walked out of the doors of churches after giving altar calls, and no one responds. Or some people respond. And, but I, it seems like I always have one or two people, not this week, because I've been saying this all week. But you have, a senior adult will come up to me saying, oh, pray for me. That spoke to me. And I'm like, but you didn't respond. And see, they're so afraid of what their friends are going to say. See, they're so afraid of what everybody's going to think about them coming down. See, that's fear. Folks, that's fear. And you weren't to live like that see this is the kind of thing that's gripping John here okay? this is the kind of deal that's gripping John here now what's really significant about this is the way that Jesus <laughs> this was a shock to us then it's a shock to me even now that the way Jesus deals with this when he says fear not it's really see it really str- I struggled with this for the longest time because again it's in the strongest language that he has available, available to him he commands him fear not do not fear which is ridiculous because it doesn't work <laughs> that does not work my son, when he was just a couple years old, two years old, the whole uh, Finding Nemo. You watch Finding Nemo? Oh, everybody should watch Finding Nemo. This is one part toward the beginning of the movie where Marlon and Dora, uh, they've just met and they're getting ready to go find Nemo. And they're out in the middle of nowhere of their little ocean. And uh, they turn to leave and Bruce is there. Remember this? It was really scary. And Bruce is there. You know, and he's at this big shark. You know, obviously this big great white. He got big teeth. You know, it's it's a really scary, kind of a, a scene. See, that would absolutely, I mean, freak CJ out. I mean, he would go out of his mind, and he'd be scared to death. And the thing is, he's seen this so many times. When that part would start approaching, he would start backing up. He'd be watching it, and he'd step up, and he would back all the way up until it came. And then he'd turn. And go, ah, and we would have to stop and pause and click, and okay, and go to the next scene because it it's freezing. Now, hey. I don't want him to live in fear. Hey, fear's a big deal. So how does Jesus deal with that? Well, what Jesus does, in the strongest language that he has available to him, see, he, I, I ran up to CJ, took my foot on his chest and slammed him to the ground, and in the strongest language I had available to me, I said, hey, do not fear! <laughs> you know, like he was going to stand up and go, oh, thank you. Good. Enough. Man, I needed that. Ooh, fixed. <laughs> you know, that, that doesn't work. But he does that here. Okay? But the interesting thing is is that when he says do not fear uh, without going into the details of the grammar it's a passive imperative which means what he's really saying is you give me that fear right now. So I never intended for you to live like that. Which means, oh, would you trust me? See, would you release that fear to me? So Jesus comes to John in this circumstance okay, and he says, hey, never intended you to live like this, and there is absolutely no excuse for you to live in fear. Okay? Now, that is consistent with what he says here, because he says fear not to John, but he says fear not also to all the prophets. When you go back and look at all those prophet passages where they fall flat on their face, about every one of them, the angel, God, whoever's speaking to them says, fear not. But the difference in our passage is he directly links death with fear. Fear. He directly links death with fear. See, the reason we're in a New Covenant hour here, okay? the reason that the prophets were not to fear in the Old Testament is not elaborated on. You can go back and deal with that and look at that. But the reason that John is not to fear here and the reason that you and I are not to fear in the New Testament is because literally death is no longer a factor. And honestly, fear leads to death. In fact, I think I put this up here for this this evening in Mark chapter 11... Verse 18, this is significant. Listen to this. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this. Basically, this is right at the tail end where Jesus comes in and he cleanses the temple. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law are absolutely ecstatic. It says, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him. See, fear had so conquered... Get a hold of this. Fear had so conquered the leaders of Israel that it was producing full-blown death in their life. I propose to you, I just guarantee you, if you live in fear, it will dictate your life instead of Jesus dictating your life. And when fear dictates your life, it will produce full-blown death in your life. And that's, exa- that's the context of verse 17. John falls on his face like he's dead. Why? Fear. And Jesus says, it is absolutely inexcusable. I do not tolerate it. Fear and death are linked together. And, in a, and it's because in a new covenant hour, Jesus conquers death. Look with me at verse 18. You got all that? It's kind of the technical part. Jesus comes to John. He sees this picture of him. Falls on his face and there's death in the midst of that. See, death motivated that. He falls, he's speechless, he's scared to death. Fear is dictating his life. Jesus steps in and says, in this hour, in the Christian hour, you and I as Christians, fear is absolutely not acceptable. I cannot tolerate it in your life. Because fear and death are linked together. And if you're living in fear, death is, cr- is crouching at your door. Okay, If you're living in fear, death is crouching at your door. And what he says to John specifically, he says, when I saw, of course, John falls on his face as though he were dead. Jesus steps forward, puts his right hand on him, and he says, fear not. Now listen to this. He says, I am the first and the last, and I am the one who lives. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And what's more, I hold the keys of death and Hades. Here's why you don't fear. Fear is the truth in death. Here's why you do not fear and why you do not fear any form of death, which is what the enemy throws at you, because Jesus conquered that. Jesus conquered death. You'd say, what do you mean by that? Jesus conquered death. Go back with me, if you have your Bibles open, and we're going to have this on the screen, but I'd like you to see the context of this in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is giving this sermon it's the first sermon at Pentecost where he's standing up, talking about, and we looked at some of this this week, how beginning in verse 22, how he says, Jesus was a man. Okay, Hey, He lived like we did. He was used by God. The Father flowed through him. And right after he says that, he comes down and, he was, and it talked about how he was handed over. And he was executed by being nailed on the cross by the Gentiles. Then in verse 24, it says... Now listen to this language. This is phenomenal. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him... And by the way, that Greek word there for dead is the dead that's used in our passage here. See, the same kind of death that is literally freezing John with fear is the same kind of death that Jesus experienced on the cross. Okay? He freed him from the agony of death, now get this, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then you have, in verse 25, and we're not going to go through the details of this, you have an Old Testament quote about how he went down to to Hades and his body was not able to see decay. Because death could not keep its hold on him. And it's interesting, the word there that it says freeing him from the agony of death is the same Greek word that's used to describe labor pains in the Bible. It's the same Greek word that's used to describe labor pains that a woman experiences in the Bible. In other words, just as it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him, it's a picture of how just as a woman is unable to keep a baby from being born in her body, in the same way, it was impossible for death and Hades to keep a hold of Jesus. Which means, see, Jesus died, went down to Hades, got there and thought, well, a little too hot for me. I think I'm going to get out of here. And walked out of that scene. And conquered the grave. Conquered death and Hades. Because death was unable to keep its hold on him. And since Jesus overcame, he says stuff stuff to us, if you believe in me, you will never see death. Never. Not here, not there. You will never see death. Now think about this. What would happen... See what would happen if we faced every circumstance in our life that the enemy has no hold on the outcome of my circumstances, has no determining factor in the circumstances of my life. He doesn't dictate that literally I am more than a conqueror in Jesus Christ, and I, I'm gonna tread, I'm gonna tread this world, and I'm gonna live in victory far above whatever the enemy could throw at me. In any given circumstances, death has no hold on me whatsoever. See, why would you fear? Why would you live in fear? No matter what the economy says. See, no matter what the circumstances are thrown at you in your life. And uh, in fact, this changes the way that physical death is to be looked at in a new covenant hour. Uh, Paul talks about physical death as being more of a transition, and this is difficult to talk about. And I debated using this illustration. I'll try it out on you. I've never witnessed anyone dying. I've never been there. Some some people have said they've been there and they've witnessed dying. It is difficult because in these day and ages, uh, in these days, uh, you have you know drugs, morphine, painkillers. I mean, they want to make that transition as easy as possible. But there are two examples of people that were close to me that watched a loved one pass naturally. Uh, One of them was uh, uh, her grandpa. My wife's grandpa passed away just a few years ago. And uh, at the funeral... He, uh, it was the weirdest thing and everybody made a, was commenting on it and I don't say you make jokes about it but it was this really remarkable thing he died with a smile on his face and you could see it in the casket and they had all gathered around and they'd been there and he'd been bad and, and uh, they'd prayed with him that day and and um, and they knew it was going to be soon and they happened to be all there it was, it was just a God timing kind of a moment and Judy it was, it was his wife her grandma saying go just go be with Jesus and in the moment he died he got this huge smile on his face and his shoulders went up and then he passed and it was just this see transition see it wasn't it wasn't captured it wasn't see there was see there's no sting in death see he's literally taken out of out the sting in death that that is see death is not a factor for the christian not only physical death but in this life and I didn't give these for us to, uh, to, uh, uh, to post up on the, uh, on the screen tonight. But you look out of uh, 1 Corinthians. Paul tells us that death has been swallowed up in victory. It's not a factor anymore. In 2 Timothy, Paul writes Timothy and says, Hey, Jesus literally has broken the power of death. It has no, it has no hold on our life anymore. For the Christian. And physical death is a, tran- is, a trans- is a transition. Now the other death that I did not witness, but someone, uh, an older lady, had experienced her husband who was not a Christian dying. And it was a horrible scene. And he was screaming and kicking and fighting and saying, Jesus saved me. And it was an ugly scene. And he was going to be where he was going to be, was, was her answer. And it was a terrifying kind of a deal. Transitional kind of deal. For the Christian, see, we don't kick, scream, not that kind of, not torment, see, not being dragged away. See, Christians, it's, this, it's a transition. It's like graduating high school. And we go on. What would happen? Think about this. See, what would, what would change? If I was no longer, context of the book of Revelation, if I was no longer a victim of my circumstances as I live on this earth, I was no longer a victim walking around, having my life being blown and tossed and swayed by every whim that that, that came about in my life. But what if every single day, circumstance, anything that the world would throw at me, I could see it in the proper perspective that I'm not going to fear because my life is in His hands and He's leading and He's guiding and I'm going to walk in victory and literally tread death. That that has no hold on me. That as Jesus walked through death and came out on the other side victorious, I'm to walk in every single circumstance in my life. In fact, uh, in the book of 1 John, we, we did a study in there some time ago, and in the book of 1 John, one of the major themes is that we are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. I'm not really sure what that might mean for you tonight, but are you? What should be the posture of a Christian? I mean, really, what, what should be the posture of a Christian? See, what's your posture? How do you, how do you live? How do you, when it really comes down to it, it's so easy to come here and listen to good preaching and good singing and worship and be around friends and say we trust Jesus. But when the rubber meets the road, see, what's, what's your posture? See, is it possible for us to look at every single circumstance in our life and say, man, I trust you in this. I trust you in this hour of my life. And I'm not a victim of my circumstance. And hey, I can't understand everything that's going on. And hey, I don't know all the details of this. And In fact, it looks pretty grim here. I don't like the way it looks there. But I'm going to walk out on the other side of this thing. And hey, you're leading and you're guiding. And you're bringing about your, uh, bringing about your plan. And so you're never going to leave me. You're never going to forsake me. Jesus, I want to live like that. I want to live in the reality of your kingdom. Jesus stares straight at John and John's response is falls flat on his face. Gripped by fear. And your language is really aggressive to him because there is no room. See, there is no room for fear in the life of the believer because fear is linked with death. Death. Fear is linked with the enemy and conquering and producing harm and despair. And I'm not going to make it out of this circumstance. There's no room for that in the life of the believer because you conquered the grave. And you conquered every single, every single circumstance on this, on this earth as a human being. You lived above the circumstances. You lived above the trials. You lived above the difficulties. I'd love to have that in my life tonight, Lord. I would love to be able to walk with You and I'd love to be able to to trust You in the most difficult times of my life where I don't have to fear because I know that I'm like Teflon and death cannot stick to me. Nothing that the enemy throws at me will prosper because I'm a conqueror. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Uh, one of the things that irritates me, probably shouldn't irritate me too much, it's just these days it's the news. Then, um, My wife and I have talked about this I don't know how, how many times, but you can't turn on the news without fear being thrown at you. its I mean, it's the latest thing. Oh, it's terrible, it's the latest. Don't, come back, stay tuned. <laughs> just, hey, i that doesn't define my life. Honestly, I didn't define my life. And when it really comes down to it, I don't give a care in the world who is the president of our country. I'm not going to enter the, enter the debate of Democrat-Republican. See, I'm, I, I'm not, hey, that no one, I don't care who it is, is going to be the determining factor in my life. Jesus Christ is the determining factor in my life. See, He is the one that controls my destiny. He is the one that's leading and guiding See, where, where are you gripped with fear? Where are you a victim of your circumstance? I think our sister's going to come and play the piano. And, and uh, I want to give you an opportunity to respond tonight. Brand new study for me. And something he's been dealing with me on. And I tend to be a worry a wart. And that's not what fear is. But it borders on that from time to time. And he has called me to be a conqueror in every sense of the word. That I wake up every... He wants me to wake up every day and live in the reality of His kingdom. And I want to invite you to that tonight. And maybe He's been dealing with you and, and maybe... And hey, I'm not trying to belittle some of the difficulties that are facing us in this day and hour of our country and some of the some of the really significant economic and social issues, but would you, would you be willing to bring that and lay that at His feet and say, Jesus, I, I don't want to live under the oppression of this anymore. I can't live in fear on this. I trust you. I trust you in your leading and your guiding. I trust your your provision in this, that you haven't forgotten me, that you haven't left me out. And maybe you need to bring that and just lay that before Him tonight. I want to give you the opportunity to do that. and We're just going to spend some time seeking here and close out this week of revival. in a few moments, when Pastor uh, Brian thinks it's appropriate, he's going to come and he's going to dismiss us in prayer. But I want to give you the opportunity to respond. And, and maybe you need to seek. I want to seek tonight. Jesus, we want to spend these next few moments just praying to you. And I'm a conqueror, Jesus. I'm a conqueror, Jesus. That my life doesn't unfold to the beat of this world but before the foundation of the world you had a plan and I'm living in response to you inviting you into every moment of this life of mine I'm not going to be distracted by what I see I trust you and I'm going to walk right through the midst of death circumstances that are meant to destroy me and it's going to slide right off just because what your word says and you demonstrated it. Let it be so in my life. We'll give you all the praise.